time. Father, it is good to be together as your church. It's good to sing these truths together and to sing this prayer. Father, we do need your strength for each passing moment of every day as we meet our trials here. Thank you for the promises of your word that sustain us. Thank you for the instruction of your word that grows us. Thank you for the body of Christ that stands with us. We do thank you for the opportunity that we have in our country with such great freedom. You've resourced us. You've blessed us. Help us, Father, to be stewards, stewards of the gospel, laying up treasure in heaven. Father, help us then also to grow as a church of prayer, a church that is at prayer and a church that is engaged in prayer and seeing your hand move because of prayer. Guide our sermon time, I pray now, and use it well within us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I'm confident that you're aware that there's been a a great event that has been recognized this weekend. It is the 50th anniversary of the eagle landing on the moon, and Buzz Aldrich and Neil Armstrong walked on the moon. Can you imagine that? Uh, they spent about three hours walking around, doing some experience, experiments, gathering uh, some of some test samples. What a most remarkable thing that they could. Uh, leave the atmosphere of the earth, and then land safely on the moon, take a walk. It was a great moment. Fifty years ago, I was nine years old. What's remarkable, partly about it, is that for most of us who hold a smartphone in our hand, we have more technology in our hand today than they had, uh, all put together at Houston, managing this thing. Uh, They say that um, Neil Armstrong had to actually manually override the uh, control uh, controls of the eagle and move it to a new landing spot as they were coming down to the surface of the moon. Um, alarms began to sound, which signaled that they only had 30 seconds of fuel, which I guess would have been uh, real uh, consequential uh, to the effectiveness of their landing and their relaunch and so forth. Uh, They said when those alarms were off and he was landing that thing because there was rough terrain and rocks and boulders, he had to move the eagle over and land it, that uh, they're tracking his pulse. His pulse went up to 160 beats a minute as he was bringing that thing in for a landing. He was a man who was in excellent condition. Uh, What a moment. What a moment that was. There's there's a few other things that are going on this weekend. Uh, Another great celebration that you're not aware of is uh, on the island of Guam. And um, uh, some of you may be connected to this through um, members of your family, fathers, uncles, uh, grandfathers who served in World War II. But today, Sunday, July 21, uh, 1944, so then today marks the 75th anniversary of the liberation of the island of Guam from Japanese occupation. Uh, my brother-in-law, Howard Merrill, and, and my oldest sister, Kathy, are there serving the Lord at Pacific Island University. He was to preach at a church this morning, and uh, he had to pr- they held their services on Saturday night uh, because the street in front of the church was going to be closed off this morning. They couldn't get to their building because of a huge parade. And every year in Guam, this is a big deal, and this year for 75th celebration, their 75th year celebration of this um, uh, release from occupation of Japan is a huge celebration going on. So uh, we celebrate 50 years of landing on the moon. We celebrate 75 years of of the uh, occupation of Japan being overrun. There's another thing that's happened, um, and it's today, 
Uh, it happened 31 years ago today, July 21st, 1988. And uh, I brought a picture to show you. On this day, 31 years ago, a judge in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, took her gavel and smacked it against a piece of walnut block on her desk. And she declared that Tasha Christine Cruz was now Tasha Christine Marceau. And Janet and I became parents officially. And I became a father 31 years ago today for the very first time. Can you remember what it was like, men, to become a father, those of you with children? Now, most of you, it was when you held a little baby in your hand. Others of you, it was like in our home where we celebrate the adoption of our children. And there's something just remarkable about recognizing and acknowledging that you're a father. It's a bit overwhelming, and I would suggest that for most of us, if not all of us, our heart desire is to be the best father we could be. Most of us are pretty challenged at that, but we want to be the best father we can be. I was thinking about how this relates, this human adoption relates to our spiritual adoption. You know, one day you recognize that you're a sinner, you go to, you run to the cross, you recognize that it is the blood of Jesus Christ alone that can shower you, that can cleanse you, that can wash you free of your sin. You, you admit your sinfulness, you believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he died, he was buried, he rose again, and that he alone could pay the penalty for your sin. He alone could satisfy with your sin and my sin and the sin of the world stacked up upon him. He alone could suffer on that cross, shed his blood, pay the death penalty required for sin, the wages of sin is death, and satisfy the demands of a holy God so that when we run to the cross and ask for forgiveness, it's granted. That's a a marvelous thing. And do you know that at that moment, a number of things take place. The Bible teaches us that at the moment that we are forgiven of our sins, that that God, the judge of heaven, puts his gavel down, so to speak, and he declares that we were never a sinner. Our sin is forgiven once and for all. The theological word for this is justification. We are then justified. We are declared righteous once and for all. The apostle Paul argues to this end in Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 5. It's a marvelous reality that I take my sin, I dump it out at the foot of the cross, it's heaped up on Christ, he pays the penalty for it, and in return I get his righteousness, which thereby qualifies me to stand in the presence of a holy God. All of that as a free gift of salvation by grace through faith, period. I'm justified. So officially, a statement in heaven is made that Van Marceau is no longer a sinner ever, there's no record. And I am at that moment adopted into the family of God, and he is now my father. You see, God isn't really everybody's father. He has children, and his children are those who have their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and have relationship restored with him. And so we have a heavenly father. Isn't that a wonderful reality? And so I was equating this with the topic of prayer that we're studying uh, this summer. I I say that we are poking around our Bibles, trying to learn more about what it means to be men and women of prayer, boys and girls of prayer, and a church that prays, understanding what our Bible teaches about prayer. It's, it's an incredible subject, and it's uh, quite detailed. 
It's also something that we really neglect, incredibly so. But to think of the fact is that we can communicate to our Heavenly Father. We are His children, and if you're a father, you know what it is like to have your child want to talk to you, to want uh, to come to you for requests, to the joy of meeting their needs, the, the joy of loving them, the joy of sheltering them, of taking care of them. What a, what a privilege it is to be a father. And our Heavenly Father, very much, we reflect what our Heavenly Father does for us. He loves us. He provides for us. He takes care of us. He longs for us to come to Him and talk to Him and share our needs with Him. And that is what prayer is. Prayer is us speaking to our Heavenly Father. You don't have to go through a priest other than the Lord Jesus Christ, our high priest, who's seated at the right hand of the, of the Father, the Bible tells us. But we can speak directly to God. One of the realities of our salvation in Christ and the fact that we are adopted into his family is that we are his children and children can speak directly to their father. We're going to find out when we return to the book of Hebrews later this fall that one of the other things that happens in our salvation is that we are ordained as priests and we have access to God as priests even. So we have a high priest, we're priests, we're children, We've been adopted into the family. We have all of this access to our Heavenly Father. It's most remarkable. Why wouldn't we talk to our Father? And statistics show that the average Christian prays about three minutes a day. I didn't double check. It would be interesting to find out uh, what the statistic is on how many minutes a day the average dad talks to his kids or kids talk to their dad. I guess it depends on the kid and the occasion. I had a daughter, I just showed you a picture of her, that when she was about six years old, she could talk all the way from Pennsylvania to Michigan, 650 miles, and never stop talking. (laughs) I thought that it was a little much, but I would love to take a trip now and have a six-year-old girl in the back seat chatterboxing my ear. By God's grace, we'll meet with them tonight in Cumberland at Dairy Queen and eat blizzards and celebrate God's good hand upon us. Doesn't it make sense that God would want to hear from his children? That we would talk. He has spoken to us through his word. Our role and responsibility and relationship speaking is that we get to talk to Almighty God. What is the deal that it would average out to three minutes a day? And I think that for many of us, we want to pray more. We're working on that. We're developing in this area. And that's what the purpose of our study is this summer. If you have your notes and your Bible position for study today, we are actually just going to do a, a relatively simple Bible study today. And we want to talk specifically about this aspect of praying to God. But we want to address a few things that are that are actually somewhat fundamental or basic in our relationship with God, that are the kinds of things that would keep our Heavenly Father from answering us. There are times when our earthly children speak to us, and we would say, I'm not going to answer that question. Until you ask, you know, we have all kinds of ways that we deal with our children. God deals with us. Many of you wonder why God doesn't answer your prayers. Why is it that your prayer life isn't more effective? And why, when you pray, does God seem to not listen? Well, let's just check the basic systems out first. Let's make sure we have the the lint out of the filter 
Let's make sure that we've checked sort of like a car that won't start before we call the wrecker and take it to the garage. Let's make sure the battery cables are clean or there's gas in the tank. Let's check some of the basics here. What are some of the basic reasons a car won't start? What are some of the basic reasons that God might not answer our prayers? That's our Bible study today. I want you to use your Bible and turn with me. It'll be a good exercise for you. And the first one of five that we're going to look at, there are more, but these are five that I thought would be good for us, is simply unconfessed sin. Please turn to Psalm 66 and look at verse 18. Now, I recognize even as we turn to this familiar verse that for many of you, this is a review. You know about this stuff that's on these notes. You, you've thought about this, but I want to tell you that I find it very helpful in my Christian life to continually review the things that I already know. But for some of you, you haven't been around church, and we have the the blessing of families coming in and individuals coming in who are seeking to learn their Bible, and you really don't know that much, and you're trying to learn more about your relationship to God, and you want to learn more about how to pray. And so this will be a helpful study for you. Notice the very first reason that we have. We call these roadblocks, hindrances to prayer, unconfessed sin. The psalmist David writes, Psalm 66, verse 18, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. I don't know about you, but when I was growing up, I memorized this verse and it it was something like this. If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. What's the psalmist talking about here? Now, we all struggle with sin, don't we? Remember a few minutes ago I said that when we go to the cross and we accept Jesus Christ as our Savior, by grace through faith, we admit our sin, we believe that Jesus Christ alone by faith is our Savior from sin and that He took our punishment. God grants us His salvation. He declares us righteous once for all. That's justification. But then you say, but Pastor Van, every day I struggle with sin. I have these bad habits I can't give up. I have this language I'm working on. I say bad words. I think bad thoughts. I'm uh, cross with my words out of nowhere. Why would I do that? I'm struggling with my temper or lust or whatever it is. And you know you're a believer. You know that you've been to the cross. You know that positionally you're righteous in Christ. Do not confuse justification with sanctification. We've reviewed this a couple different times in the last few months, but I want you to understand this. A lot of people confuse justification with sanctification. Justification is once and for all being declared righteous in the eyes of a holy God. Nothing can ever change that. It's part of the security of our salvation, actually. But sanctification is my salvation at work in me as a child of God, adopted into his family. On a day-to-day basis, I do battle with sin. And sanctification is my growing in Christ. It is my, uh, I I lose my temper or uh, some kind of occasion occurs and something really important like somebody cuts in front of me with their car in my lane and gets too close and I'm really angry at them. And I think really bad thoughts about him. And then I realize, what is that all about? And I realized that was, the, that was so ungodly. And so I sinned, didn't I? And 1 John 1, 9 comes in. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin. And you know what it is, Christian, to do battle with sin on a day-to-day basis. And, and immediately, almost always immediately, you're concerned about, about 
why you would think that, why you would do that, why you would say that, and, and the Holy Spirit convicts you, and you make it right, and you're growing in grace, you are conforming to the image of Christ, and you are battling with sin on a day-to-day basis in the sanctifying work of the Word of God and the Holy Spirit in your life. This unconfessed sin that I'm talking about here today is not that. I'm not so much talking about our daily battle with sin. You're convicted. You're talking to God about it. You care about it. You're working on it. No, this idea that I'm talking about is sin that I cherish, not the ongoing battle of the Christian with sin. This is the idea that there is sin in my life that I really don't want to go away. There is sin in my life that I enjoy. There is sin in my life that I am harboring. There is sin in my life. The idea of cherish is to take good care of it and protect it. And that's what David, his psalmist, is talking about here. When I cherished sin, I was far from God. And sin becomes a a block. Sin becomes a roadblock. It becomes a bird nest in the downspout. It blocks my effective prayer and God's response. There's other passages of Scripture that we could look at. Look at Isaiah uh, chapter 59. If you want to turn there, you may. If you want to just listen to me, I'll read it to you. Isaiah 59 and looking at verses 1 and 2. Look what he says. Uh, God says through Isaiah to his uh, chosen people Israel when they were sinning against him, they were holding out against God, they were cherishing sin, They were refusing to repent of their sin. He says, Isaiah 59, 1 and 2, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save. God, is your arm too short to come save me? Nope. His arm's long enough to reach you. Or how about your ears? Are they so dull that it cannot hear? You got wax in your ears, God? Why don't you answer my prayers? No, but your iniquities, that sin, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. Now you say, well, that's inconsistent with his character. He's omniscient. He cannot not hear. That's right. It's a a euphemism or uh, an idea of anthropomorphism. It's, It's equating something we can understand. God just doesn't hear you. Yes, he really does hear you, but he refuses to respond. He's not going to hear you. Why? Because your sin is a roadblock. And you say, well, I wonder why. And you are cherishing sin in your life. And I want to tell you, I think that if it's true of you, you have already, since I've been talking about this, identified that sin in your life. You know it. You already know it. And you're ineffective in your prayer life because you have a part of your life where you're holding on to some sin that you refuse to give up. You can assure yourself that that becomes a block to effective praying. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 12, it says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. That's a quote from Psalm 34. You can look it up later. This brought to my mind uh, this idea of, of a helpful pattern for praying. I probably heard this uh, when I was a little boy and my mom was my Sunday school teacher. You've heard it before, haven't you? Acts. A-C-T-S. The acts of prayer. It's just a helpful little pattern. Some of you might have never heard about this. 
And some of you are struggling to have an effective, meaningful prayer time. You don't really know what to say. You don't really know how to approach it. You might go sit on your front porch with a cup of coffee and you say to yourself, self, I'm going to pray. And you start to pray, and the next thing you know, you're thinking about balancing the checkbook or what some guy at work said to you or why, why there's more weeds than grass in your lawn or whatever. And you think to yourself, this isn't working. And maybe working through this pattern of acts would help you. How do you begin to pray? Well, you begin with A, adoration. Praise the Lord. Acknowledge his great qualities. We did that a little bit in that old ancient hymn that I really like, so we keep singing it, um, that we started off with today. Um, uh, uh, what, what was the name of it? Uh, great God of Wonders. Great God of Wonders. You, he's marvelous in all your ways, it begins. Acknowledging that you're, you're beyond our mind even. Father, you are you are a great God. You are creator. You are too wonderful for words. You might even have a song or two and music that would play during this time or words that would come to you as you acknowledge and worship the greatness of God. But the greatness of God often reminds us of our puniness and our puniness often reminds us of our sinfulness. And then we realize in short order, after I've been worshiping and I'm acknowledging God, A, I go right to C, and that's confession of sin. Father, you are a great God. You are a holy God. You are a marvelous God. And Father, I need to confess before you. I was cutting up onions with my wife last night and I snapped at her because she thought I was making them too big. And I was mean as a snake. What is that all about? What difference does it make? That's what I told her. Lord, it's this woman you gave me. Oh, isn't it refreshing to bow your head and to humble your heart and to say, Father, I confess before you my sinfulness. Cleanse me in Jesus' name. I've worshiped him. I adore him. I recognize my sinfulness, and that's what brought this to mind. Unconfessed sin is a barrier to prayer, and so I want to confess my sin as I pray. I move on with thanksgiving, and we have so much for which to be thankful, and I end with supplication, A-C-T-S, supplication. That's an old English word. We don't use it anymore. To supplicate means to bend your knee, to bow your, bend your knee, kneel, to kneel. That's what it means to supplicate, kneel. And so this is the idea of bringing humble requests before our Heavenly Father. You know, you can do this when you're running your backhoe. You can do this when you're uh, uh, um, playing, um, what do you play? Um, it's the third service. I'm struggling here. Um, you can just do this anytime. When you're walking, you can do this. But it's a great pattern for your prayer. Adoration and then confession. Point number one, one of the roadblocks to our prayer is unconfessed sin. Adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. There you go. Some of you might find that helpful. Number two, an unforgiving spirit is something that we need to notice. An unforgiving spirit. Now, this is actually a pretty big topic in the Bible. I want you to turn with me to Mark chapter 11, verse 25. Mark chapter 11, verse 25 and I want you to notice our Lord is teaching 
um, on prayer here. His disciples, Peter, has asked them some questions. There's some interesting teaching here. We might come back to this passage because we need to do something this summer as we poke around on prayer with this whole idea that there are verses in the Bible that say, if you ask, I will give it to you. And I have asked, and God hasn't done that. What about that? And we need to deal with that in multiple places. But, and that's in verse 24, if you notice. But then in verse 25 of Mark 11, notice what Jesus says. As he's teaching about prayer, he says, And whenever you stand praying, forgive, if you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. So as you're praying... And you recognize that something comes to mind that you have a grudge against somebody. You have not forgiven somebody for sin against you. You need to take care of that so that, he says, your Father in heaven would forgive you. We just talked about that one of the key blocks of, of our prayer life is unconfessed sin. So as I confess my sin, I recognize that I want forgiveness from God. I need to realize that I have a responsibility then laterally to... Uh, uh, horizontally here to forgive people around me. I recognize that this is a tough topic for some people. I have had people in my office weeping in fear that they won't go to heaven because they refuse to forgive someone. And I recognize that I have lived a a spoiled, rotten, privileged, easy life. The worst thing that anybody ever did to me probably was in ninth, when I was nine years old and a kid hit me with green apples at Bible camp or something, you know? It stung really bad. And I recognize that I have not had happen to me some of the things, some of the horrific, horrible things that people have done to you. And they have just done terribly sinful things to you. And it's been very, very difficult for you when you think about that, that to say that you will forgive that person, you want that person to just die and go to hell. You want to forgive them. And I recognize that this is a difficult thing and it takes a special grace from God. But we have a responsibility. One of the most serious and significant spiritual responsibilities we have in maintaining our relationship with our Heavenly Father is demonstrating a heart of forgiveness to those who have wronged us. And so I would suggest that if you, you, you might still be struggling with this, but I'm talking about I'm talking about a person who latches on to that hatred. I'm talking about a person who doesn't want to forgive. Not a person who's struggling to get to the point of forgiveness. You recognize that God has forgiven you of all of your sin and that you have an obligation then to return, in return to forgive. There's a process here. It's difficult. And I would suggest that if this is you, you already know it's you. Just like if you know there's sin that you're cherishing, you know if there's someone you refuse to forgive, ask God to give you a special grace. It could be, it could be that this is part of the reason that God doesn't seem to ever answer your prayers. You have latched on like a pit bull to the bitterness and the anger and the hurt of this situation and you refuse to forgive. Ask God to help you get through that. It's not an easy thing. Our Lord talked about this in his prayer at, at, uh, on the Mount of, uh, um, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 6. And 
Remember when he was teaching our disciples to pray, he said, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts. Does it stop there? As we have forgiven our debtors. He goes on to say, for if you forgive others, verse 14, Jesus is teaching, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is not an easy subject, but I want to challenge your heart to examine your heart that the grace of our Lord Jesus would be yours as God has forgiven you of every horrific, ugly sin that you have committed that nailed Christ to the cross. So we have an obligation to forgive and not hold on to the bitterness of the lack of forgiveness. Thirdly, I want you to see that an unloving spouse can be a block or a roadblock. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. Our time is waning and we don't have a lot of time. And this is a very interesting passage. Another day we'll do some... Uh, sermons on marriage and remind you of some of these responsibilities. But I wanted to mention this. It has to do with these relationship matters um, that can foil an effective prayer life. And so in 1 Peter chapter 3, Peter begins by talking to wives, particularly to wives who are married to a difficult, unbelieving, or even unsaved husband. Let me just read it real quickly. It raises some interesting things here right away. Likewise, wives, 1 Peter 3, be subject to your own husbands. All right, that fits Ephesians 5 and the submission role. That's a whole topic in and of itself. But wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. In other words, you've got to be quiet. You keep talking to your guy. You're telling him, bop, 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 bop. He doesn't want to hear it. Quit talking and live it out. A spirit of grace. Let the grace of our Lord Jesus as it comes through your life of holy living and gentle submission. Because you want the right thing, but if you keep talking, what does he do? He's the man. The more you talk, the, the more stubborn he's going to be just to show you that you can't talk him into doing what you're supposed to do. And so he says, stop talking. Let them see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight is very precious. Now, some people take that very literally. They don't believe you should braid your hair, wear jewelry or dress nicely. And I don't think that's it at all. I think the idea here is don't focus on the externals for your beauty Let your primary beauty come from within. Let it be the grace of our Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God that by doing you should... Excuse me, wrong text. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, and you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. And you say, okay, I'm supposed to call my husband Lord in some translations. It says master. And sometimes when Mrs. Marceau is being facetious, she will look at me and say, okay, my master or okay, Lord. What's that all about? Am I so, wives, are you supposed to call your husband's Lord and master in this submissive role and have this gentle, quiet spirit? No, he's using an illustration from 
way a thousand years before in another culture, in another time, in another place where women did in that male dominated culture, the women did have to call their husband's Lord and master. And he's talking about the special grace demonstrated by some of these women of old, Sarah by name, as she, even in that difficult culture where women were put down and men were dominant and women didn't have rights, even there she had a a gentle, quiet spirit and could call her husband Lord and had an inner beauty. So the instruction to the wife is, Not so many words. Let your beauty come from within. He then moves to the man, and he says this. He says, likewise, husbands, verse 7, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Did you hear what he just said? Now, he was talking to the wife about how to deal with an obstinate, difficult, probably unsaved husband. He's talking now to a believing husband who is to have the wisdom to dwell with his wife with a special understanding. Look what it says. Live with your wives in an understanding way. Your job is to know your wife. Know what makes her tick. Figure her out. It's a lifelong project, I know, but you can do this. You can figure out your wife. You know what she wants. And you are also, husband, you are to show honor to her because the wife or the woman is the weaker vessel. I would take that to mean largely physically, perhaps somewhat emotionally. Men are more stable. Women are a little bit less stable emotionally. Don't write me letters. (laughs) I'll take you to Genesis 3 and show you why this is true. And I'm right. (laughs) Most of the time. Sometimes the woman is the more stable one emotionally, but almost all men can bench press more than their wives. And they have a strength. And so they are responsible to respect and honor this part of their wife that is a little bit weaker and they need to protect her and they need to shelter her and they need to show honor to her. Why? Because she is an heir with him in their salvation. She's equal in every way and she's spiritually equal and he's to honor her. And then the warning is so that your prayers may not be hindered. Wow. And so the fact of the reality is that if I'm an unloving spouse, it is possible that my attitude and my actions and my behavior towards my wife is actually a roadblock to prayer being answered in my life. I think that Peter seems to be addressing at the least here the attitude, letter A, the attitude of the husband towards his wife. Wouldn't you agree with me that strife and contempt and disrespect are hardly helpful for one's prayer life? At the least, don't you think when you're disrespecting your wife and you're not dwelling with her with understanding and you're putting her down and you're not honoring her as an equal heir to you in your walk with Christ and you have strife and contentment and anger and issues, at the least, you're not praying together. Secondly, letter B, I think that he's talking about the very acceptability of the husband's prayer. It's, a, it's once again, God would say, the way you just treated your wife, don't come praying to me. Don't pray to me, man. You got to go to your wife first. You go to your wife, and maybe it starts like this. 
babe, I sinned against God and I sinned against you. Will you please forgive me? And then just shut up, okay? And don't come and tell me, but you, but, but she, you can't help what she does, really. And maybe, maybe if she has a husband who dwells with her with understanding, who treats her with this gentleness because he's stronger and he recognizes that and she's an equal heir in his walk with Christ, maybe that would have a lot of effect on her attitude. But husband, we need to be concerned about this because it affects our prayer life. For number four, I want you to skip to number five in your outline because I want you to see that all of these are external things that we are responsible for. So far, all of these things are personal and uh, somewhat external uh, to us. They're things that we're dealing with. External is not the word I wanted to use. They are personal and they are uh, things that we're dealing with within ourselves. Number one, unconfessed sin. That's, That's me personally. Number two, an unforgiving spirit. That's personal. That's me. Number three, an unloving spouse. That's something I can deal with. That's personal. Number five in your outline is what I want to make number four because it fits with the other four. And then the number four stands alone and we'll make that number five. Did you follow me? An undisciplined, night, an undisciplined life is number five and I want you to make it number four. Because they are all the things that I can do something with. They're all the things that group together an undisciplined life. The text here, you can read it on your own, is Matthew chapter 26. It's when our Lord took his disciples up to the Garden of Gethsemane on the night that he was betrayed. What a privilege. What a privilege that Peter, James, and John had to pray with their Lord, especially at such a critical time. And three times our Lord comes over to them and they're sound asleep. I simply wanted to use that as, a, as sort of an extreme illustration of the reality for my need for discipline if I'm going to pray. For some of us, God doesn't answer our prayers because we fall asleep before we pray. For some of us, we are so undisciplined in our prayer life, it's not even three minutes a day. So how is it that there's effectiveness of prayer going on in my life if I'm not even disciplined enough to pray? And so in the same way that I discipline myself to go to the gym, I discipline myself to enter into a renewed focus of prayer. Fifthly, which is number four, is the unseen spirit world. And we're out of time. Let me just tell you about this. I just wanted to put this out there because some of you have been praying for a long time about very specific things, maybe even really big things. Some of you... uh, have ministries in other parts of the world. Some of you have organizations that you want to see God work in a great way. Some of you have prodigal children and and you want to see God break them down and bring them back. In Daniel chapter 10, it's a most fascinating story. I would encourage you to read it. Daniel has begun to pray with great conviction for God to release his people from captivity. He prays and nothing seems to happen. And then an angel appears to him. It's a very frightening occasion for him. He's having a vision. The people around him uh, run from it, but they don't even see it, it says. They can't see the vision or hear it, but they ran because they knew something scary was happening. Daniel ends up flat on his face. And an angel, a messenger of the Lord says to him, Daniel, God heard your prayer. In fact, God heard your prayer and, and for 21 days... 
specifically says that. For 21 days, I have been coming to answer this prayer specifically. But I was held up by the king of Persia. You know who the king of Persia is in that context? It's demonic forces in the demon world. Almost all Bible scholars agree that, it is, that he's talking about something in the unseen world where there are forces of darkness and a hierarchy of darkness under Satan's command. He says, I came to you and for 21 days I was held up and held back from answering your prayer. God sent me to answer your prayer and Satan held me back. The prince of Persia held me back for 21 days until Michael, the archangel, came and he got me loose. That's basically what it says. And you're like, what in the world is going on here? I really don't know. But you read it and see what you think. And what I wanted to just encourage some of you is to know that as some of you have been praying and God doesn't seem to answer your prayer, you run through the checklist, unconfessed sin, unforgiving spirit, unloving spouse, unseen or undisciplined life. You say, Lord, I'm doing pretty good in all those areas. Would you please answer this prayer? It is possible that there are things going on in the spirit world that you know nothing of. Do not stop praying. Keep praying. God is at work sometimes, even in ways that we can't see. Don't give up. I conclude with this statement from E.M. Bounds in Power Through Prayer. You see, the application of the message today is such that only you can do something about it. You probably have already identified if you have unconfessed sin in your life, if you have an unforgiving spirit, if you're an unloving spouse, if you're an undisciplined person spiritually, only you can do something about it Begin to ask God to transform you, and he will. Ian Bounds says, what the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more and novel methods, but men and women whom the Holy Ghost can use, men and women of prayer, men and women mighty in prayer. I wonder what God would begin to do in our homes, our families, our lives, if we really were men and women mighty in prayer. We'll keep poking around this summer. Let's keep challenging ourselves. Remember, change doesn't occur without change. So this week, you step through the acts of prayer. You ask God to help you learn how to pray. Let's become a church mighty in prayer. Will you stand with me, please? Father, we need your help in this area. We are grateful for your grace and your mercy in our lives, your patience with us in so many ways. And Father, would you just show us how to become men and women of prayer, boys and girls of prayer, a church of prayer, and that we would grow into a church that is mighty in prayer. Forgive us for our weakness, our softness as a church. And grow us, we pray as prayer warriors. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.